Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Lost Ladies of Lit mini episode. I'm Kim Askew here with my co-host, Amy Helms. And today we're going to be talking about the unusual connection between the authors Doris Lessing and Jenny Diskey. Their relationship was like something out of a storybook, right? Amy, you want to tell us about it? I sure do. But first, I think we need to back up a little bit. So, you know, I listen to a ton of audiobooks, right? Yes. Between walking my dog, driving my kids all over town, I probably have three solid hours in a day where I could be listening to a book, so might as well. And while we read so many Lost Lady authors on the podcast, you really can't find those authors for the most part on audiobooks, so I have to kind of branch out, which is fine. So I'm always kind of trying to figure out what should my next book be? I don't know. Um, so I finished an audiobook. I just did the browse selections to try to find something else to do next. And the title, Why Didn't You Just Do What You're Told by Jenny Diskey came up. And I immediately recognized that name because she's someone that our previous guest, Hilma Wolitzer, had recommended. Right. And listeners, if you haven't listened to the Hilma Wolitzer episode, you have to go back and listen to it because she is incredible. She had us just completely, I'm going to say it in sore songs. We love her so much. But about Jenny Diskey, I remember reading a lot of her work. She was like basically in every, I feel like every London Review of Books issue for a while, they were running her essays. She's a British writer. Yeah, she was a stalwart in terms of their contributors. And of course, you are so much more highbrow than me, reading your London Review of Books constantly and recognizing that name. But I didn't know anything about her. So I was like, oh, okay, Hilma recommends her. I'm going to give this a shot. And so this book, Why Didn't You Just Do What You're Told? It's a great title, by the way. I mean, of course you want to read something called that. <laughs> yeah, and she kind of looks, it's a picture of her on the cover and it looks very Patty Smith, you know, okay. it's like a back flag and white photo of her looking oh, like a cool. badass. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this book is a collection of her essays from the London Review of Books and then also some excerpts from some of her memoirs. And it was published posthumously. It came out in the summer of 2020. She died from cancer in 2016. It's kind of the best of her work. So if you are new to Disky like I was and want to get kind of a broad smattering of her work, it's the perfect way to do it because these are long form essays and profiles and book reviews, and they each run about 15 to 20 minutes. So it was kind of like listening to a podcast. The subjects she covered ranged from Jeffrey Dahmer to the Titanic, to Keith Richards, and arachnophobia. So (laughs) all across the board, you know, and even topics that you would think you wouldn't be interested in, she makes really interesting because she writes with this super drawl sense of humor. It feels really effortless and unintentional, but it's amazing. There were so many moments where I was laughing out loud on my walk, but she also throws in a lot of history and cultural analysis as well. Yeah, she definitely feels what I remember reading of her, it was edgy. She met all these interesting people. She did talk about her relationship with Doris Lessing a little bit, which I think you're going to tell us more about. So she um, really had this knack of elevating nonfiction writing into a true art form. She really pulled you in in every essay. And I, I mean, they stood out to me. I remember looking forward to reading her every issue that she was in. Yeah, because like even her book reviews are so much more than just a book review. It's like she she uses the book as a springboard to write about all this other stuff. Yes. There was a profile of Margaret Thatcher's husband, for example, 
or um, the evolution of the office in society. And both of those I would completely pass on normally, but you wind up getting caught up in it and uh, finding it fascinating and funny. She's also authored 10 novels in addition to her nonfiction. So Yeah, obviously I haven't read any of those. I'm guessing you haven't. No, I haven't. No. Okay. So listeners, if anybody out there has read any Jenny Diskey novels, reach out to us and let us know which one you recommend. So anyway, one of her best known nonfiction works is her 2005 memoir, Skating to Antarctica, which is part travelogue, part memoir. And then it's also about this trip that she took to Antarctica. Um, It looks back at her disturbingly troubled childhood. So all of this was fascinating as I'm listening to it. And I get home from one of my walks and I decided I have to Google her because I just, I liked so much of what I was hearing. I wanted to know a little bit more about her. And to my surprise, one of the first things I read when I Googled her was this connection to Doris Lessing, which I guess maybe a lot of people already knew this, but I had no idea, but she was sort of pseudo adopted by Doris Lessing, the Pulitzer Prize winner, when she was a teenager. She had had this super dysfunctional childhood. So I was like, wait, what? You know, hold on, hold the phone. What's going on? I need to know more. Yeah. And she writes a lot about it. Um, She's very, very upfront about it and, and analyzing it. So, and I think you got some more of the story. Yes. So I, I did a deep dive and interestingly, both women had earlier in their relationship kind of made a pact with each other that they would not discuss sort of their connection to each other. It was kind of going to be off limits in terms of writing about it. Um, they both kind of broke that rule though. They both kind of eventually caved and and started writing about it. I think Doris Lessing wrote a novel that very obviously features Jenny Diskey's persona in it. And at that point, all bets were off then. I mean, come on, everything is copyright. And how can you not talk about such a formative relationship if you're a writer, especially if you're a writer who writes nonfiction? I mean, (laughs) exactly (laughs) the elephant in the room. So I went back and I got another Disky book, which is the last memoir that she wrote before she died. It's a book called Ingratitude. She was dying from cancer when she worked on this book. So she talks a lot about that experience of facing the end of her life. But then she also writes a lot about this time of her life with Lessing. And a lot of what I'm going to be telling you is information that I got from this book. So... Um, If you're just wondering where I'm pulling this out of. It's not Wikipedia. No, no, no. (laughs) So to go back to what I was saying about her traumatic childhood, her parents were both complete disasters. She was sexually abused at home. She was raped by a stranger when she was uh, like maybe 12 years old. She attempted suicide. She was then put in a psychiatric hospital or a bin, as she called it. This all happened to her before the age of 15. She was also expelled from school and had already stayed at a number of foster homes. So it was kind of just hot mess all around. The authorities didn't really know what to do with her. And so a kid, a boy who had gone to boarding school with Jenny Diskey, his name was Peter Lessing. He'd heard about all the gossip having to do with Jenny. And he asked his mom, Doris Lessing, is there anything we can do to help this girl out? Doris was at the height of her fame at this point. She had just published The Golden Notebook. She had never met Jenny, but she wrote Jenny Diskey a letter saying, hey, my son told me what's going on. 
why don't you come and stay with us for a while? Disky admitted that receiving this letter felt like a fairy tale at the time, like a real life fairy godmother had appeared to save her. Yeah. I mean, it must've really seemed like it in the moment, like all of a sudden out of the blue, you get this letter from someone you don't know, and they're offering to basically take you out of the hell hell that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Hellscape. Yeah. Yeah. So she saved Jenny from this horrible home life for sure. But at the same time, the arrangement of now living in the Lessing home was pretty complicated. So not necessarily the happily ever after of a fairy tale. Because as you can imagine, she's kind of like an orphan turning up at the home of this artistic genius. Um, It's bound to be pretty unnerving, pretty awkward for somebody who had already been through so much trauma. Yeah, it feels like something out of a Dickens novel. Yeah. Yeah. Like the wave coming to like, yes, yes, yeah. live at the mercy of the, you know, rich benefactress or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yep. Um, and yeah, Disky kind of compares it to a Dickens novel. I f- believe Doris Lessing referred to her as the foundling sometimes in her interviews, which is funny. So when Jenny arrived at Lessing's house, Doris opened the door. She's holding a gray kitten and Disky actually recalls that she believes that that kitten was originally Sylvia Plath's kitten because she had gone to live with Lessing just after Sylvia Plath committed suicide. So it's possible the kitten came from Plath's home. So it's two foundlings, (laughs) basically. But anyway, Doris has this cat and she's like, welcome to my home. And oh, by the way, this cat can be yours. And she kind of shoves the cat in her arms. So that was one uh, memorable moment for her. But staying at this stranger's house, as you can imagine, completely weird, completely awkward, and made even more so by the fact that Lessing's son, Peter, the one that sort of spearheaded this whole thing, he was still away at boarding school. So it's not like he was there to break the ice. It was just basically Disky and Lessing rattling around the house for most of the years that she lived there. And Disky said she felt like on tenterhooks the whole time. Um, She wrote, by the time that I got to Doris's, I knew from experience how you tiptoed around a house that wasn't yours, fearing the sound of your own footfall, creaking doors or floorboards. I remembered not knowing the household arrangements. When was it okay or too late to get up? Did I wait for others to have breakfast or get on with it myself? Was it okay to use this or that bathroom? Which things were special to whom? Oh my gosh. Like, you know, you can imagine, I've been in situations like for a week at a time when I was younger, like staying with people or whatever and having that feeling, but knowing it was going to go on indefinitely and that you're supposed to be grateful for it. Right. Everybody has that feeling when they're a guest at someone's home, you know, you're kind of, you are tiptoeing around. You can never make yourself feel completely at home. Right. Um, Disky goes on to say, I found myself freezing when I encountered her as if trying to implode myself and I couldn't stop myself saying thank you. And sometimes thank you very much for having me. I picture myself in those weeks as traditionally Japanese, forever trying to make myself smaller and out of the way, making my bow lower and my thanks outlast their acceptance. Wow. That's so beautifully put. Yeah. And Lessing was kind to her. But she was just kind of too matter of fact about the whole thing. I'm sure she felt the awkwardness too and was trying to brush it over. So she would just be like, oh, make yourself at home. Don't worry about it, you know? But she didn't really offer Disky anything in the way of explicit direction 
on how to make herself at home. And Disky never had the courage to ask some of those basic practical questions running through her mind. And then so she said she had this weird sensation of half gratitude and then half anger and fury and resentment for having to feel the gratitude, like you said, Kim, as if her bill to Lessing would never be settled. And remember, too, she was a troubled adolescent, right? She was a sullen, damaged kid. So she was no real peach to have around either. You know, Lessing was having to deal with this, like, kind of bad seed of a kid. And repeatedly, Disky would get into drugs or have to go back into psychiatric hospitals. And Lessing was the one who was there as kind of her guardian, having to be her through all that. Um. Some other interesting anecdotes. Disky says that while she lived with Lessing, Doris used to stand on her head for 20 minutes every day because she was really into meditation, which I think is funny, a funny image. Um, And then very early on, when she first arrived at the house, Lessing made an appointment for her to go see a gynecologist so that she could get fitted for a Dutch cap, which was a sort of diaphragm. Disky was 15 at the time, and she says, I was not even remotely thinking about having sex, but Lessing was insistent. She kept thinking like, no, 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 you have to do this. Otherwise, you're going to wind up in trouble. And she said Lessing was really frank with her about sex. She apparently learned a lot about Lessing's own sex life. Awkward. Lots of candid conversation. (laughs) I'm not surprised given that it's the person who wrote the Golden Notebook. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So. It sounds like it almost was more than they both bargained for, really, on some level. But um, how long did she live with Doris Lessing? I don't remember. So it was about five years. And yeah, I think it was more than Lessing probably bargained for. Disky thinks that Lessing probably didn't anticipate it being permanent when she made that invitation in the first letter. She thought she probably, yeah, she thought it would probably be like a few weeks until you get yourself on your feet. I'm happy to help. And then it, it became permanent. Lessing also tried to get Disky enrolled back in boarding school over the years, but nobody would accept her. So it was kind of like a dead end. How do you solve a problem like Maria kind of mm-hmm. thing? Like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do with Jenny? Um, things came to a head when Disky was around 19 and she ended up leaving because they kind of had a dust up. But the two women were still part of each other's lives for 50 years after that until Lessing's death. Yeah. Um, I can't, what, wasn't there some talk of adoption at one point or, but why didn't she adopt her? Initially, she had offered to adopt her. Um, and then Disky's biological mom, who was problematic, Uh, She raised a big stink about it and threatened to sue Doris Lessing if that ever happened. So they just kind of dropped it. Did Disky end up thinking of her as her adopted mother? Not really. And she talks about that in this memoir, Ingratitude, how difficult it was for her, for her entire life, really, to label what this relationship with Lessing was. She felt really uncomfortable calling her my mother. But, you know, when you're talking to people, you kind of have to have a descriptive for it. So she mostly referred to her as the woman I live with. But then she also joked like, that. well, that kind of sounds weird, too. Like, are we in a lesbian relationship or something, you know? And then she'd sometimes jokingly call her Auntie Doris or my benefactor. 
<laughs> oh, that's the Dickens <laughs> connection right there. And then when Disky eventually had a child as an adult, Lessing awkwardly asked her, so do you want the baby to call me grandma? Like, how are we going to do this? So I think Aww. the key word to sum up a lot of their relationship is awkward. You know, yeah, yeah. I get the sense they thought of each other as family, but definitely not the warm, huggy, share your feelings bonding type of relationship. Some mothers and daughters are like that. Exactly. Yeah, like real yeah. family. It felt like that when I was um, reading her memoir sometimes. It's like, well, that could be a relationship with a mom. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Lessing was notoriously a pretty unemotional, kind of detached sort of person. Disky told a story that when Doris told her at one point that her father had died, she broke the news, you know, sorry, Jenny, your father's passed away. She sort of did a there, there, awkward pat, pat with the front of her fingers on her shoulder. Oh my God. Prince Charles and Harry. Totally. Oh my yeah, God. Exactly like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, awkward. And, and yeah. Disky says it couldn't really be called a hug, but she tried. And I felt strangely as if I should comfort her for the effort she had to make. <laughs> Which is hilarious. So yeah, Lessing was pretty emotionally distant, but she was kind to her in a matter-of-fact, no-nonsense way. And I mean, she did offer up everything about her life to this child, financially, you know, emotionally as she could. Um, and then this is weird, though, too, because Lessing had two other children from a previous marriage that she had basically abandoned earlier. Oh, that kind of maybe explains it almost a little bit. Yeah. Maybe it was like a guilt thing. Maybe. I don't know. There was so much that I was researching about this disky lessing situation that to go down the lessing earlier children rabbit hole was just going to be another whole path. So I didn't look up too much about that, but she basically had been living in Africa had two kids, decided she wanted to move to England and really focus on her writing career. And that was that. She left the kids and there was no looking back. So that's very reminiscent of The Lost Daughter. I was going to say totally. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if anyway, but yeah. But combining all this, it seems yeah. like she was maybe not the most maternal figure you'll right. ever meet. You know, Right. So did you know how living with Doris Lessing shaped Disky as a writer? Does she talk about that specifically at all? Yeah, she does a little bit. Well, this is what's interesting. Disky already knew before she got this invitation from Lessing that she wanted to be a writer when she grew up. She was a voracious reader. So can you imagine what it was like to then suddenly be living with a world-famous author when you yourself have those aspirations? I mean... Yeah adding to the intimidation factor, right? Right, right. And then, so she right away found herself immersed in this hive of artistic literary people. So famous writers would come over for dinner and she says she would just sit there shy and not saying a word, listening to their intellectual discourse over the dinner table. Or she'd go to see a movie with Doris and her smarty pants friends and then get to listen to them afterward, you know, criticize the movie. And Disky says about this, these people all seemed so finished, so confident, and they wrote and were read, and by doing so, they were deities to me, the hopeless, unfledged writer whose sentences were never buoyed with confidence. Yeah, it's so interesting because on some level, her writing seems so confident, but there's so much insecurity Yes, I mean, I feel is. like she always battled with that, and I think it came from probably from, I mean, I'm not 
hating Dr. Freud, you know, her early childhood and everything, but she is just so insecure that that's why she's so timid walking around how she never becomes comfortable there, even after yeah. so many years. Um, but also how amazing to be a fly on the wall with all these intellectuals and writers when you're an aspiring writer. I mean, that's kind of incredible. Yeah. She said she never had any confidence in what she said or thought when she was around them. And I think you're right. There is an insecurity that like runs throughout her writing, but that's what gives it the humor in yes. some ways. Yes. Self-deprecating and everything. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but she was highly intelligent. And I think Lessing saw that and appreciated it. In fact, when Disky had replied to her original letter saying, yes, I will take you up on this offer, Lessing told her friends that she thought the letter was intelligent, humorous, and well-written, which convinced her she was doing the right thing. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, she's like, yeah. Oh, I like this girl. So, right. you know, she might have kept a lot of her emotions to herself, but um, I think yeah. she appreciated Disky's intelligence and personality. I'd be curious to find out more about um, her side of this, Lessing's side of this, and what she wrote or felt about the situation. Yeah. Well, like I said, they both had made a pact with each other that they wouldn't write about each other. And then Lessing wrote this book in 1974 called Memoirs of a Survivor. And there's a character in that book that is clearly based on Jenny. So I haven't read that, but I think if anybody wanted to get a pretty good idea of Lessing's perspective, you might turn to that book for some ideas. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. Adding it to our list of thousands of books to (laughs) read, but I'm interested. Um, And I'm just thinking, once again, this whole story could make a really good movie, I feel like. Yeah, it's like the odd couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitcom, but not, yeah, kind of a comedy drama. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, And then getting back to the title of that last memoir that Disky wrote, in which she talks about all this, it's called Ingratitude. You can read that title two different ways. Oh, yeah. So it's in space gratitude, but it's also could be read as ingratitude. Because Disky does acknowledge. She's like, I was always kind of filled with rage at having to feel grateful. So it was a complicated relationship at the end of the day. Well, yeah, like many a mother and daughter. Anyway, that's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, consider taking a minute to repay us by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Yes, that's the sort of gratitude that goes a long way with us. (laughs) We'll meet you back next week with another Lost Lady of Lit. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was created by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Amy Holmes and Kim Askew.